the end game, that, that's where it gets tricky because there's really no plan to ever stop the fiscal deficits. Debt to GDP is very, very high, and the world's never been in this position before where we have an entirely fiat-based system with debts this high. And especially because it's not due to a war, it's due to accumulated promises over decades. So there's no, there's no light switch that can just change it next year. Hello there. How are you all? It's a new month. So much going on this April. I've got Danny Boy sat here with me as we're about to start our UK Sprinter shows here in Bedford. We've got some absolute bangers lined up. We've also got our live show happening here in Bedford next Friday. We've got the end of the football season and I've also just bought a bar. So much to tell you about. So much going on. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by our new lead sponsor, Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. And on today's show, we've got everyone's favorite economist. We've got Lynn Alden back, and I know you're going to love this. Now, with all the crazy stuff that's been going on over the last month, you know we had to ask Lynn to come on the show. You know we had to, right? We've got to try and make sense of all of this. We got into everything that happened at Silicon Valley Bank, the BTFP program, and what we can expect to see with rate hikes throughout 23, and if we are in fact heading for a global financial crisis 2.0. So listen, I hope you enjoy this. But sometimes it's a bit hard to enjoy the stuff that looks a little bit crazy. But I hope you get from this what you want to get from this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can feed back to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. You can jump into our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. And if you want to come to our live show with Jeff Booth, James Lavish, Lawrence Lepard, and Ben Ark in Bedford on Friday, the 14th of April, please head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Lynn, hi, how are you? Pretty good. It's a long time to talk. Well, about a month. Yeah. That is a long time in our world. We've got, we've got Danny sat here next to me. How are you doing, Liam? <laughs> good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Um, we could talk to you nearly every day the way everything goes so crazy. We could we could do a daily show with you, Lynn, with everything that's going <laughs> on. It's a crazy world out there right now. I mean, you've got that little wry smile on your face. I think it's more of a... More of a what the f f smile with everything that's going on. It's good for you though. It's great content. Yeah, it's been a lot to write about. It's funny because, like I said before, I'm working on the book, and I prefer actually markets to be chill for a couple of months. So I don't have to like uh, spend as much time in them, and they keep they keep pulling me back in. It, it's certainly been a pretty wild, you know, like three weeks here. Well, so we spoke about a month ago. We made a show that which people should go and check out. But was covering essentially your article about how the Fed has gone broke. And then since then, it seems like most of the banks have gone broke. Most of the commercial banks banks have gone broke. So it's a it's a good topic to get into with you. Um, I spoke to Caitlin Long as well to cover the subject, but I really wanted your take on it as well. So, how have you taken on in all this kind of like craziness over the last month or so with the banks? Uh, so a couple of different ways of looking at it. One is if we go back to the prior uh, discussion we had around the Fed going broke, uh, essentially a similar thing happened to a lot of these banks. So you know to, to quickly recap that discussion, Fed liabilities, uh, their interest rates increased very sharply, uh, while their asset side didn't. Um, and so the, the Fed's now operating at a loss. They're, they have a financial loss uh, ongoing, and they have about a trillion dollars in unrealized losses um, in their treasuries and their mortgage-backed securities. Uh, of course, the difference is that nobody can do a run on the Federal Reserve, uh, but if an individual bank has that situation, they can get a run. And you know, it's funny, most banks are not as 
in bad shape, relatively speaking, as the Federal Reserve because their liability interest rates go up more slowly than the Federal Reserve's, um, and their assets are a bigger mix of, of types of things, and they have more capital relative to assets than the Federal Reserve. But of course, what differentiates them is that they're vulnerable to um, a bank run. And so what we've seen is that you know, if you go back to the 2008 crisis, that was because a lot of banks made bad loans. You know, they, they made like subprime mortgage loans to people that, you know, can't really afford the house that they're, that they're signing up for. And so a lot of them, you know, defaulted. In this uh, environment, it's the opposite. You're not seeing defaults, at least not yet. There's, there's certain troublesome pockets on the, on the horizon, but it's not really that type of credit event. Instead, they ironically bought super safe assets that, you know, either have no chance of defaulting or very, very low. And but the problem was they bought them when they were like yielding 1.5% or lower in some cases, and now they're yielding way higher. And when a long duration bond or security increases in interest rate, it means that if you were to sell it into the market, if you were to sell one of the old ones on the market, it would trade for the same interest rate as the newly issued ones do, which means it has to be sold at a discount so that the the effective interest rate until it matures is the same as that new interest rate. So basically, the, the price goes down as interest rates go up. And so what you have a lot of these banks have is that they're holding safe assets that are basically guaranteed to pay back, but they're temporarily underwater. And they're able to hold those until maturity and get all their money back unless there's a bank run that makes them sell at an inopportune time. And so that's what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. You basically had two, you had, they were on the on the far end of the bell curve of both sides of that risk. So one, they were all in like these long duration assets, whereas most banks are a little bit more diversified with the type of lending they do and the type of securities they own. They instead were, for whatever reason, they were all in on the those longer duration treasuries and mortgages. And then number two, uh, the vast majority of their deposits were uninsured because they mostly catered to um, businesses. Uh, and so uninsured depositors are more likely to to run uh, in the event of a problem than insured depositors. And so the combination of a more flighty deposit base and having bigger uh, unrealized losses on their balance sheet uh, relative to their capital than other banks put them on like the, the far end of the bell curve for banks that were vulnerable here. But if they'd have just held their deposits with the Fed, these banks would have essentially been fine. This was a liquidity issue, right? Yes, I mean, it, well, if they're allowed to, I mean, we, you know, for example, we, I think we talked about last time that you know the Narrow Bank or mm. Caitlin's Bank, they want to hold all demand deposits at the Fed, um, and those types of banks have not been allowed to exist. Um, if if a bank had held shorter duration assets like T bills, um, you know, maybe you know two to five year treasuries, things like that, um, they would have less uh, exposure, and that's why you know J.P. Morgan, for example, um, they've been a lot more careful with their duration. Uh, they've been they've been focusing on more short duration assets, and so they have less of a problem. Uh, but yeah, basically, any the, the more that a bank has done long duration uh, types of assets, the more vulnerable they are uh, to this type of situation. So you don't really see an issue among a lot of the major banks, and instead it's in small banks and in some of these kind of medium and like more niche banks. But so if if they one of the banks just decided to start depositing all their funds with the Fed, this is a bank that's already chartered. Uh, would the Fed reject their money? Well, I think it depends on the percentages. Um, if a bank suddenly started selling its loans and security books, I think it would raise a lot of red flags and questions about what they're doing. But banks in aggregate can't do that. So one, an individual bank can, but the Fed controls how much total reserves are in the system. 
And so basically, if, if a bank is selling its securities and loans and it's, it's holding that in cash, it means those securities and loans are likely winding up on another bank's balance sheet anyway. Um, and so the, the, the ratio of total securities and loans in the banking, you know, the whole, the whole banking system would still be much, much higher than the amount of reserves uh, in the system. But I mean, this, the, even the current ratio is way better than it was in 2008. I mean, back in 2008, for example, there was $23 of deposits for every $1 in cash reserves. Uh, so they were highly, highly levered, very, very little actual liquid reserves, whereas uh, currently it's below six. Uh, so it's not historically high. I mean, I, I still think, you know, in the I, I still think in a fractional banking world, six is high. Uh, but historically speaking, uh, it's not an unusual ratio at all. If anything, it's on the lower side of, of you know, my lifetime. Um, but it's it's a faster world, and it's a world where they have more unrealized losses on otherwise safe assets than they've than they've ever had in modern history. Because the Fed's never gone from zero interest rates to five percent interest rates in such a short period of time, so you know, so quickly. Well, that faster world is an interesting point. That was what Caitlin was referring to with me. Is we live in a world now of APIs and instant access, and that's why was it forty two billion was the withdrawn from Silicon Valley Silicon Valley in a day? Was it? I believe that was the headline number. Yeah, and, and and you know, to Caitlin's point, they they had things like software APIs, so you could pull your money out without even going to the bank website, let alone going to the bank, you know, in person. You know, a lot of a lot of these regulations are built on like you know, grandma going to the bank and pulling out her nickels, hmm. um, but it's not. It's, it's all software APIs, and as Caitlin has pointed out, it's going to get faster with Fed now um, later this year, and it's you know, it's funny because. You know, right now, as we speak, there's a there's a very large brokerage in the United States called Charles Schwab, and they're technically insolvent. They so their their assets are lower than their liabilities uh, because they they did the same thing as Silicon Valley Bank did. They bought a lot of long duration safe assets. They're now very much underwater, and the losses exceed their capital. But if you look at Charles Schwab stock, it's you know it's down, but it's not like cratered. Uh, it's still trading at an above average price to earnings ratio, and no one seems to be concerned. And it's in large part because they don't have the other risk that Silicon Valley Bank did. They, uh, you know, less than 20% of their depositors are uninsured, so they're much lower flight risk. And it's it's a more diversified deposit base, you know, nationwide. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of in almost like the too big to fail category, but it shows that to the extent of this problem, you have some, you know J.P. Morgan is basically unaffected by this. If anything, I mean everybody you know they're benefiting from this. Um, some banks, like say Bank of America or Citi, you know they have they have some losses on their balance sheet, but they don't exceed capital, and they're not at any sort of deposit flight risk. Quite the contrary. And then you have a couple other banks, like in the top ten. That you know, sometimes they have unrealized losses, but again, they're you know they're not exceeding capital and they're not at risk of of deposit flight or very low risk of deposit flight. And so mostly this is affecting very certain types of banks, but unfortunately, that includes a long tail of of smaller and less liquid banks. Does this uh, Charles Schwab situation? Is it also? Is there any part of that? Is the confidence that even if Charles Schwab were in particular trouble, that Janet Janet Yellen would jump in and quickly backstop all the depositors? Yeah, I think it is. That goes back to my point that it's 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 viewed as like systemic, um, and so one is most depositors are under the the FDIC limit because they're not really business deposits, and and two, uh, you know, the probability that Charles Schwab would be allowed to fail and investors lose their securities or their cash is considered very low, 
And so there's not really any sort of like panic in the air, even though one of the biggest brokerages in the country is technically underwater. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So let's go back a sec. A sec. Um, uh, I asked you about what, you know, whether, uh, People just put, have their full deposits. Say Silicon Valley had their full deposits with the Fed, but you said they wouldn't allow them. What are they allowed to do? What are they specifically expected to do? We know, for example, pension funds have certain uh, mandates to own certain things like treasuries or you know, maybe securities. And there's certain things they can't hold. Is there a specific guidance on what banks are meant to do with the deposits? Well, kind of. I mean, they have various regulations. The funny thing is it's, it's usually the opposite. It's usually not about regulations preventing them from being too safe. It's usually regulations preventing them from being too risky. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny. It, you know, There's a difference between what a bank signs up to do and what it does after it exists. So we've seen a general trend where if a bank goes to the Fed and says, here's our plan. We want to hold all demand deposits at the Fed. We want to be a full reserve bank. Um, the Fed says no. Uh, so the narrow bank was told no, custody was told no. Uh, that's something they they don't want. They've I, I've ironically turned down full reserve banks. Now, if a bank after it exists, like as a you know, it's a normal bank that then decides that it's going to, um, uh, you know, be like less risky. It's going to sell securities. It's going to sell loans and and create a lot of reserves, uh, like move a lot of reserves into the Fed, you know, it, it would probably be allowed to do that, but it would start raising questions. It's almost like it, it's it's not being a bank anymore. In the modern era, banks are kind of meant for du- like a duration transformation. They take in short duration deposits and then they lend them out longer. And so there's not really any examples of banks that don't do that. The closest example would be some of the big custodian banks like State Street or Bank of New York Mellon. They don't really do lending the same way that these other banks do. Um, But yeah, most banks are based around lending. It's kind of insane, though. You can't have full custody banks, full reserve banks. I said to Caitlin, it's one of the things that came up. yeah, I don't really. We have an insurance similar here in the UK, and it's about eighty thousand pound. I think we're covered for. Um, I don't have to worry about that. My personal account never has eighty thousand pound in it, but a business account. We've got seven, it's eight people now work on this on our show. Our cash flow requires us to have way above that in in our accounts, and now I'd much rather just pay a, a percentage fee each year and know that it's a full reserve bank. That is a service I want to buy. That is a service people like Caitlin want to provide. It protects us it makes the system more stable yet it i mean i don't know what the rules in the uk are but if we were a us based company we would not be allowed to purchase that service exactly yeah and, and so and it's not an official rule i mean there's the fed doesn't say outright you can't be a full reserve bank it just so happens that any bank that wants to be full reserve they delay their application for years they eventually say no uh they give some other reason uh and it's just you know almost like quote unquote accidentally no full reserve bank ends up existing. And, you know, in the current environment, so whether or not you'd have to pay fees would depend on the prevailing interest rate environment. So right now, for example, the Fed pays almost 5% on bank reserves. And so a bank could easily just say, okay, you know, we're going to hold our cash at the Fed. We're going to collect our 5% and we're actually going to give you 2% interest and we're going to use the other other nearly 3% for overhead. Uh, now, obviously, if you if you if you go back five years when interest rates were zero, or go back, you know, during the post-COVID environment when interest rates were zero, then they would have to charge a small fee. So they they could structure it and say basically, we'll give you whatever interest rate the Fed does minus X percent, and sometimes that will be you paying the bank, and other times that will be the bank paying you, depending on what's going on with interest rates. 
What what was the Fed paying uh, on deposits back when people like Silicon Valley Bank were buying these long duration treasuries? Uh, zero. Basically, okay. it, it's roughly in line. The number is very similar to Fed funds rate. So when right. you hear what the Fed interest rate is, uh, their interest on reserves is, is currently quite similar to that. So it wasn't necessarily they were being uh, greedy, but they were trying to earn some kind of yield on the deposits, which kind of made sense. I guess the risk was that they put so much money into long duration yielding treasuries. Yeah. And and again, they're not the only bank that did that, but they so they chose two things. One is they chose to be super long duration, which was risky. And two, they chose to have a very concentrated business oriented deposit base, which is riskier than, you know, not having that. And I mean it's not they're not the only bank that does that. Like Citigroup, you know, City is one of the biggest banks. It's one of the big four banks in the country. And they also have a very large percentage of business deposits, um, a higher than average uh, percentage of uninsured deposits, not quite as high as Silicon Valley Bank. But of course, their their deposit base is far more diversified. And as a, as a globally systemic important bank, uh, they have higher capital requirements. And basically, you know, capital deposits are going towards city rather than the other way around. Uh, so what Silicon Valley Bank did, like neither side was extremely stupid, but but they were both edge cases, and then combining them together was extremely stupid. So with um, Silicon Valley Bank, like obviously their depositors were like largely Silicon Valley firms, like people that thrived in the zero interest rate policy world. Like they knew that better than anyone. So why did this catch them off guard? Like why weren't they prepared for this? Were they basically betting that the Fed had pivot sooner? I think they were. Um, also, bank runs are just hard to predict. Um, you know, basically, if there was no bank run, their assets would have matured over time, and they would have gotten all their money back. And so, I think that that you know, when they did analysis of what's the chance we're going to have a forty-two billion dollar bank run in a day, they said, well, that's probably like a six sigma event. You know, we can't plan for that. You know, almost any bank in the world, if they if they have a multi-billion dollar outflow quickly, they're going to face problems. Um, and so, I, th- I think that they just yeah, they 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 were greedy with duration. Um, and they, you know, I believe they had a policy where like, if you, if you like take out a loan, they're expecting you to hold your cash in the bank. Um, so they were kind of encouraging business to have large uninsured deposits. They were, they were making that choice, which was a very, very risky choice. Cause it's like they, they created a flywheel, which is really good on the upside. Um, because, you know, if they, if they make a loan to a business, and they tell the business, you know, while while you're holding that loan, before you spend it all, hold it in our bank, you know. Then they use that to make more loans or buy more securities. So they have, you know, their their deposit base increased much more quickly than the average bank did, and but that also means it can come down much more quickly than the average bank did. So I think there's multiple fronts where they managed risk very poorly. Um, but there's a couple other banks, you know, like First Republic that, you know, they have some risks, but they didn't really make the same types of errors, but they're still in trouble. Uh, it it kind of shows how a bank run can cause a lot of problems for banks, regardless of they did, you know, if they did anything kind of outlyingly stupid, even though this one, Silicon Valley Bank did. Hmm. Just going back to Narrow Bank, did Narrow Bank ever get uh, their banking license? Uh, was it between a banking license and access to the Fed? Uh, they don't. Uh, they don't have access to the Fed. It's been right. years. Okay. It's like what, like five, five years now, six years? They don't have access to the Fed. And are they fighting this? I they they, they did. I'm not sure what the current status is. That that that'd be a question. I think probably Caitlin tracks 
yeah. those type of things. I know Caitlin's fighting it. Do do events like this make it easier or harder for them? Well, this, I mean, well, you mean the, the harder for them to get approved? Yeah. Like, does it make their, their battle with the Fed even more tricky? Because it would basically um, incentivize people to not hold money in the traditional banks. Well, I think, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's a social question. Uh, there's certainly more awareness now among the risks of fractional reserve banks. There's more interest, especially among businesses of saying, can I just put my money somewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the fed's kind of getting like memed on Twitter. Right. And, and so on one hand, so that if you have more and more people saying we want this kind of bank to exist, that is good in their favor. Um, but whether or not that actually translates into, into actually happening, I think is another matter. We are seeing some quite spiky questions in these. Are they Senate testimony hearings? Or, you know, I saw Janet Allen being pushed pretty hard with regards to the banks. And so I, I think some, some of the people in Congress are starting to realize that uh, the situation is a bit screwy. But what, what I was wondering also is, is, I mean, is the main reason that the Fed doesn't want these banks to exist is that they need the banks to be operating the way they have been operating to, to continue the... Uh, I think Greg Foss would probably call the the treasuries a bit of a Ponzi now. Is it to keep this going? I mean, that's my view because, you know, if they don't allow a full reserve bank to exist, it kind of means that if you want to have banking services, which every almost every individual business does, they get they have to choose between fractional reserve banks. Uh, you know, there's no choice to not have a fractional reserve bank. Yeah. Whereas if you have a choice, it says, okay, we're only going to provide, you know, we're going to give you basic payments uh, and saving services. Uh, we're not going to lend the money out. We're going to be a full reserve bank. There's, you know, that would a lot of deposits would want to flow towards that um, that are that are not currently. Now, there's other things that they can do. I mean, it's you know, I don't think we're like instantly pull all money out. I mean, right now, for example, businesses are still underutilizing money market funds. You know, there's things like sweeps, for example, where a certain number of times per month you can put your excess bank funds into a money market account, uh, which is basically safer. Um, so, you know, you might have a limit of how many times you can do that, but not all, not all of them do that. Um, so there, there are tools that businesses have without going to say a full reserve bank to sharply reduce their risk of major funds loss, but, but all of them are kind of, um, hassles you know, there's also, there's now FinTech services that let you split your account up into multiple banks and they handle the overhead for you. But I mean, I actually, in some ways it's a good thing that people are experiencing more of the frictions with banks and fiat currency because they're all they've always been there it's just they're usually abstracted away and you don't have to think about it whereas the actual risk is more clear in this environment and again it's not you know i'm not taking that view that you know the banking system is going to fail and that it's it's you know everything's going to change in 90 days or whatever the case may be most of the especially the big banks they're very solid it's 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 the small banks that i think are facing problems and then it's these we're, it's, it's banks that cater specifically to businesses or specific niches that they've ran into problems. We are excited to welcome Iris Energy as the new lead sponsor of What Bitcoin Did. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. 
we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger user since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. The Nano S, to me, is the best hardware device on the market, so if you're not managing your private keys, please do go and check out the Nano S or the Nano S Plus now. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Is this by design and therefore, is this like going to centralize banking? Because when, every time we see one of these banking failures, we see one of the larger banks scoops them up. Yeah, you know, I think HSBC, HSBC in the UK bought what, Silicon Valley's bank in the UK for like a pound or something? You know, these other large banks are always happy to pick up these smaller banks, but is this are we essentially centralizing the banking system? We are, yes. It's deposit flight from small banks to big banks. Um, and, you know, we've had a multi-decade trend of a smaller and smaller number of banks in the United States. Banks just keep, um, you know, there, there were like, say, 13,000 banks, you know, 50 years ago, and now it's like 4,000 banks. Right, so it's 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 down to a third of what is what it was before, and I think that's going to continue. And this particular event might accelerate to some extent because a number of small banks might get acquired, might merge together uh, into larger banks. Now, I guess the the counterpoint to that is the United States is actually still somewhat of an outlier in terms of how many small banks we have. Uh, you know, like Canada, for example, their banking system is already way more consolidated into into the top you know, four to six banks. Uh, most other, you know, UK, they're, you know, your banking system is more consolidated than ours is. So, you know, if anything, the United States is trending more towards the way that most systems already are. But yeah, that's that's kind of a reality of, of the current system that it, it, it centralizes over time. And most countries are dominated by a handful of very, very large banks. What, why is the US different? Is it because it, because you essentially got 50 states and the states themselves have lots of separate banks? Is it because of that? I think so. So a banking historian would be able to probably go into more detail, but so, I mean, we had at one point up to twenty six thousand banks or some some wow. number like that over, like say, a hundred years ago. If you go back to the history of like pre-Fed 
banking. I mean, it was you know state banking. We have this kind of long history of these these small banks. We also have a separation. We have like um, you know credit unions like thrifts, where there are these like, like smaller simplified community banks. It's kind of a long tradition of that that, that goes back, you know, a century or more. And so I, I don't know if it's an accident of our our history, like our federation, or if it's if it's certain laws we've constructed that you know someone like Kate Lelong or George Selgin or someone could probably go into more detail. But yeah, we have just a much larger number of banks per capita than many of our peers. I don't know if you saw recently the Hindenburg research piece on, well, it was on Block, but formerly Square, um, and they're a notorious short seller. Some of this makes me wonder if people have the inside information that a bank was holding a particularly large amount of long duration treasuries and knew that they would have a liquidity crunch that they could be incentivized to uh, create some kind of social media contagion of the risk of a bank and be a short seller of that bank. They could be, yes. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a vulnerable scenario. Like we, you know, for example, if big enough entities, you know, pressured Schwab. I mean, basically, Schwab is only functioning right now because deposits don't want to go out, right? And I, I'm not trying to cause that. I mean, I, I I have some accounts at Schwab, right? So I'm you know I'd prefer them not to have an issue. But the point is like the system's kind of inherently fragile. And this is actually discussions I've had online, which is, you know, adequate liquidity for banks a hundred years ago is obviously very different than today. But even going back 20 years ago, before ubiquitous social media, it's it's a different environment now because, you know, just people can panic and and coordinate and and do whatever they want. And then yes, bad actors can say, well, I'm gonna short a bank and do this and depends. I mean, there are laws on preventing certain types of things, but, but short sellers do have a long history of, of doing that. And of course there's, you know, there's different types of shorts. There's ones that are exposing actual fraud, uh, bringing awareness to it. They, I think, you know, some shorts play an important role in the market, but then there's other ones that are more like, um, amoral. They just want to make a quick buck. So they're, they're willing to short something, drum up a lot of negative hype for it, and then get out of their position, whether or not they actually think that the underlying firm is a bad actor or not. Mm. You mentioned earlier, you talked about during 2008, there was uh, $1 held in reserves for every $23. And now the ratio is down six to one. How, how, why has that trajectory changed so much? And, and sorry, why has that rate changed so much? And is the trajectory still heading into even lower um, reserve ratios? So the answer is money print and QE. Uh, basically, oh, okay. during the 2008 crisis, when the Fed did their first round of quantitative easing, followed by some later rounds, what you know they they created a lot of new bank reserves and they bought a lot of bank assets and therefore and then they uh, you know they basically gave them a lot more cash in exchange for taking some of their assets and then they changed regulations to have them hold higher levels of of liquid assets. Uh, and to answer your second question. It's not trending down anymore. Basically, there was okay. a gigantic, you know, when all that money printing happened, uh, you know, over a decade ago, there was a massive down move in that ratio, and then now it's kind of trending sideways, which makes sense because that's in, that's if anything that's below average of the last fifty years. Uh, it's kind of back down to the lower end of its historical range, um, where it's really hard to kind of get much lower than that. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, it's something like five and a half now. It's actually below, it's, it's between that five and six band. I think it reaches low, it's going below five at one point, but it, yeah, now it's kind of in this trend-wise band. But of course, the pro so the problem is not that the banks are historically under, that they have less liquidity than normal. It's that they have, they have 
in the age of social media and in the you know now that a lot of them have these unrealized losses any one of them is very very vulnerable and you can argue as as Caitlin has that i mean if even if you're not going to go if you even if you're not going to do full reserve banking that even in a fractional reserve banking environment you need more liquidity if everything moves faster uh you know both technologically and socially there was um, when this was first announced that the banks, uh, sorry, the Fed were essentially going to backstop all deposits. I mean, rumored, and the numbers they talked about were up to I think was it four point four trillion? I think it was, or some crazy numbers. Uh, Lynn, there were some debates over whether this was QE or not. It felt I think it might have been you or somebody else said like half of uh, TradFi Twitter said this was QE and half said it isn't QE. Um, is it or is it money printing? So it's pro liquidity, but it's it's not QE. Um, and and it's the, the Fed is not backstopping all deposits. What they're doing is they they provide a liquidity facility that if if a bank like let's say Silicon Valley Bank, if there's one like it where they have a lot of securities that are safe uh, but that are currently underwater, and uh, you know they don't have to sell them unless there's a bank run. In which case, in order to honor deposits, they have to sell them at a loss and therefore be- become insolvent or heavily impaired. Instead, this facility let- lets them deposit them with the Fed uh, as collateral for a loan, which they can then use to deal with any sort of liquidity runs they might have. Um, and they can, you know, basically they they can get full face value when they make those um, deposits. Uh, they still pay a higher interest rate. On that loan facility than they would from deposits, so there's there's not really an incentive for a bank to use it unless they have to. Uh, it also does not work for loans. Uh, so, for example, First Republic Bank was in trouble because, unlike Silicon Valley Bank, most of their assets are loans, which are illiquid. You know, the a loan is unique, whereas security is more standardized and more liquid. And so they they needed other types of liquidity arrangements. So if you go back to September 2019 repo spike. The Federal Reserve had to step in with repo lending, and then they had to transfer to doing some QE. And I think we're kind of in a similar environment now, where they're still doing QT. Um, they're not buy. They're not outright buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That would be QE. Um, but they're lending and they're taking some of those on their balance sheet on a more temporary basis. Which, is, as long as they keep recycling those loans, as long as those loans exist. You've 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 had a similar effect to QE on the market in the sense that you've you've pushed more liquidity back into the banking system and raising hiking interest rates again. So are they basically pulling all of their levers at the same time? Every one of they them. Are. Just, yeah, just they're, pull everything they're, on. they're pulling. So yeah, they're pulling some tightening levers. Uh, they're still basically they're still being tight in some areas while they're trying to be loose in a couple other areas. And that's that's actually kind of a 1940s playbook, which is to try to reduce. Private sector lending and and just you know kind of private sector liquidity, while still providing liquidity for bond like sovereign bond markets and again systemic you know cascades and issues. How did that work out in the forties? Well, they I mean they were successful in the forties because they went full command and control economy. Um, There's a lot of political unity and they won the war. It didn't go well for. Most countries involved in the war, including a lot of people, a lot of countries on the winning side that were not the United States. A lot of them had like a a bare victory where you know you won, but you were devastated and your currency was wrecked. Uh, even even in the United States, we had big inflation from it. One of the things that I'm struggling to understand is um, if you're a bank who, like one of the smaller banks, who's struggling with liquidity and needs to park their bonds at the Fed for up to a year, right? Is it's a year limit? 
after that, even if you get paid out at par today, after a year, you have to presumably buy that bond back. I don't know how that actually works. But um, what if you would that would still break you break the bank at that point? So at that point, that bank would be in trouble. I mean, if they spent a full year and they're still unable to unwind that loan, they're probably in a position where they're going to be acquired by another bank or otherwise have an issue because a bank. So that lending facility comes with pretty high interest rates, um, uh, and so a bank can't survive with with funding rates that high indefinitely. Uh, it would just become unprofitable. It would look like the Fed, right? So the Fed is operating the loss. Um, if a bank had a similar liability interest rate mismatch, they would also be operating at a loss. And so you probably you would see that bank get absorbed into other banks or you know otherwise have something like that. Uh, and they and, you know if they default on the loan, if they say we we can't pay back the loan, then the Fed acquires those treasuries and securities, and that would essentially constitute QE, that they, they've now permanently added some assets to their balance sheet that they that they didn't necessarily intend to. Right. So really, it incentivizes the bank to only use this facility in the short term. They probably won't even use it for a year. It's going to be much shorter term than that. Yeah, every bank is incentivized to use it as little as possible. Um, how much it's used will in part be the Fed's decision, because if they keep doing quantitative tightening, uh, they increase the, the odds that banks are going to have to use it. Whereas if they stop doing quantitative tightening, um, banks might be able to use it less. It also depends on just idiosyncratic things like social media. I mean, whether or not, you know, it, like initial so- signs show that this is no longer a problem, you know? But for example, if one day we wake up and people are freaking about Charles Schwab, then maybe they have to use it temporarily. Maybe another bank has to use it temporarily. So any bank is vulnerable to potentially having to use it should there be some sort of issue. Um but it's. I, I think the overall trend is now kind of sideways. And this this might be stupid, but if you're a smaller bank with um, some like ten year treasuries on your books that are way underwater, presumably is that interest rate high? So you you're not incentivized to like park it with them and try and do something with the money over a year, and then kind of buy your bonds back, as in almost like arbitrage trade it. Yeah, you're not really incentivized to do that because the interest rate is higher than you're you're earning on it. Um, the only catch is that you could purposely like um, give your um, assets to the Fed and then purposely default on it, and and because it's at face value, right? So if a treasury is trading down to eighty cents on the dollar because it you know interest rates went up, they can like give it to the Fed and then default on it and then you know use that capital to do something else. But there's, I mean, there's one. There's safeguards against that. Uh, two, you, because you can only put securities in the facility that are older than the facility, so you can't just keep recycling new securities into it to do it. And two, if a bank were to purposely start gaming like that, they, I mean, they'd get they get a call from the Fed right away and be like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> um, so you talked about in the '40s when they were able to control this, but led to high inflation. Uh, if these new facilities lead to inflation continuing to be high and the Fed having to continue to hike rates, is this going to uh, compound the problem? It can. It, uh, some of it's a rate of change, right? So the, yeah. the more that they hike rates, the more they are likely to suck money out of banks, well, especially smaller banks, and towards larger banks and towards money markets. But isn't, you say this is providing liquidity, is the idea of providing liquidity just the idea of continuing this charade that everything's okay in the economy. And it just feels like it's, I remember a long time ago, I did an interview with um, Giacomo Zucco and he talked about the problem with the fiat system. It's like a drug. 
And when you, you know, whenever you're uh, addicted to drugs, you always have to take more and more until you eventually kind of have your crash and you give up and then you go through the pain of stopping. But if you don't, you have to have more and more and more. Are we, is this not essentially what we're doing? We're continuing to kick the can down the road of all these problems within the financial system. Yeah, and I think that's the end game of this type of system, that basically when all the debt's at the sovereign level, you're very, very high debt to GDP, um, it needs ongoing liquidity in order to support that market. And so we saw, for example, last year with the gilt market, you know, they wanted to do QT. Uh, you know, they wanted to reduce their balance sheet. I think, you know, they even had a meeting uh, scheduled to, you know, publicly talk about reducing their balance sheet. And then they actually instead had to start buying yeah. uh, gilts because you would have had a cascade basically like, you know, as, as they were all discounted, you would have pensions selling it. And the problem is they're selling it into a market with no buyers. And it just kind of cascade into a, a collapse. And so they had to come in as a, a buyer of last resort and reliquify that. In a similar vein, if the Fed just decided, nope, we're going to do nothing, you would get Silicon Valley Bank just spewing these securities into the market. You'd have other banks come in and you know, the, the, basically the yields would rise and other banks would have to sell theirs. And you'd get this like feedback loop of more and more securities being sold into the market until the treasury market breaks. You you'd have a similar thing that, that happened to guilt. You'd have that happen to, to US. And so they, they, they're kind of in a position where on one hand, they're helping out individual banks, but at the end of the day, what they're helping out is, is the sovereign bond market. Right. So this is the reason why we might potentially yo-yo towards hyperinflation, because every round of these issues, they have to print more and more money or provide more and more facilities, some sticking plaster here, a bit of rope there to try and keep the system, the charade going. Well, yes. I mean, so I'm hesitant to use the word hyperinflation, especially in, in any in the near term. I mean, you know, if you go back long, you know, historically, every fiat currency ends with the end of that currency. Um <laughs> So on a long enough timeline, sure. But I, you know, in the near term, I mean, hyperinflation happens generally with a couple key things. One is you usually have liabilities de denominated in a currency that you can't print. So in Weimar, it was you know, say, gold-based war reparations. For emerging markets, it's often dollar debts, um, and basically there ends up being no foreign demand for your currency. Um, and you you just you basically hyperinflate. Um, so you basically need an infinite amount of money. Uh, printing or a, a, a tremendous amount of money printing in order to hyperinflate plus no demand for that currency. Okay. The United States is not really in a position where that's likely anytime soon. There's still foreign demand for the currency. There's a lot of debt denominated in the currency globally, uh, and all of that represents demand for it. Uh, but instead, it's about just generally longer-term waves of recurring inflation. And then the end game, that that's where it gets tricky because there's really no plan to ever stop the fiscal deficits. Debt to GDP is very, very high. And the world's never been in this position before where we have an entirely fiat-based system with debts this high. And especially because it's not due to a war, it's due to accumulated promises over decades. So there's no there's no light switch that can just change it next year. Um, so yeah, I, I do think we're kind of have a spiraling towards a fiscal spiral. I just, I don't think it's hyperinflation in, in sort of the intermediate term. I would I wouldn't call it that. Have you gamed out the potential in games? Well, I mean, I I own Bitcoin, <laughs> so I mean, basically, that's the, I that's think the life. The, so, what's the end game if you don't have Bitcoin? Potentially gold. Okay. Real assets. You know, if you own real assets, um, if you if you owe fixed rate debt, you know, if you have a house with a thirty year mortgage, if you 
you know, own high quality equities, if you own gold, if you own commodity exposures, if you own Bitcoin, that's generally the the types of answers. And you can, of course, re- you can reduce the volatility by also owning things like T-bills. You don't have to be hundred percent in those inflation hedges, those, those real assets. Um, but it's, it's basically a situation where, you know, the 1940s, for example, they had to let inflation run hot Basically, one way to think about it is that when sovereign debt to GDP is over 100%, it's exceedingly unlikely that that's going to be paid back in purchasing power terms, right? And then the question becomes, how is it defaulted on? So if it's an emerging market that that debt is in a currency they can't print, they're more likely to just nominally default and restructure and get another recycled loan from the IMF and just you know continue that. Whereas if you're a country who can print your own currency you're very, very unlikely to nominally default. And instead, you're likely to let inflation run higher than those bond yields for a sustained a long period of time or, or in multiple waves of it. And bondholders will get every dollar back or every pound back, but those will be worth less than when they put them in. And the problem, the, the, what makes this environment challenging is that this debt is not due to a war. It's, it's due to permanent military spending and due to the way we structured entitlements. Um, and those are not things that change quickly. And so I think we could get into a very long period of just recurring inflation, kind of like how in a lot of emerging markets, you just have just long periods of recurring inflation. And in many cases, it doesn't lead to hyperinflation, at least not in any sort of like five plus year period, but it leads to a sustained problem that just keeps reoccurring. Well, you've told me and Danny that you think this is a story of the next decade is inflation many times. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's recurring. And I think, you know, right now we're in a disinflationary trend. Uh, basically, whenever whenever policymakers are willing to cause a recession, they can get inflation down temporarily. Uh, but I think that, yeah, I think the story of this decade is that whenever they want to have a period of growth, it's probably going to be a period by, you know, it's, it's basically going to be coincided with a period of inflation. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. We're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes privacy effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like you had to in Wasabi 1, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, 
and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. Also, you get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously, and Wasabi 2.0 makes this so much easier. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. What do you make of what's happening with the BRICS nations? I've read recently that Saudi Arabia is trying to join uh, the, the, the BRICS group. Um, do you believe this is to try and build an alternative to the dollar for political reasons, or do you think this is a way to hedge themselves against dollar risk? Or both. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a bit of both. So basically, um, ever since the global financial crisis, you've seen, you know, f- for decades, countries, for example, were decreasing their tonnage, their uh, gold reserve tonnage, uh, and increasing their dollar exposure in their central bank reserves. Starting in in 2009, uh, that trend reversed, where countries began reaccumulating gold. Uh, so they went from under 30,000 tons to something like 36,000 tons. They they had a they, they it's like a V-shaped change. They were going down and they started going up for you know 15 years now, uh, 14 years. Um, they've also around the margins, you've seen the you know, Chinese currency go from no exposure in reserves to a little bit of exposure in reserves. So it, it it's it's grown quickly from a very very tiny base. Uh, you also seen the euro lose um, uh, g- general uh, holding, uh, while the U.S. dollar has been relatively stable. Um, you know, there's it, it's. I think there's there's two sides to these headlines, and and both extremes tend to, in my opinion, be wrong. So you know, there's a lot of headlines around threatening dollar reserve status. There's a lot of headlines around these alternative things, and there's been a long history of this. There's been decades of countries trying to make currency alliances, things like that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people jump on the hype train. And I think that's in some ways overstated. On the other hand, I think it's I think it's a mistake for people that just dismiss this and say, oh, it's been happening for decades. It's never going to happen. Don't worry about it. Because obviously things are 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 have changed, right? This isn't 2004. This isn't 2012. You know, back then China was way smaller than the United States. Now, in many measures, it's larger than the United States. So the biggest trading partner with the majority of countries now. Um, we, you know, we froze Russia's reserves, and so we've we've kind of pushed Russia and China closer together. Uh, Saudi Arabia's relationship with the United States has cooled, uh, while their relationship east has improved. And so we've seen a, a number of headlines, which is basically. Saudi's cozying up to China a little bit. Brazil and China just made some deals to kind of, um, you know, exchange their currency more directly. Uh, we we have China having a better uh, prospect of being able to buy current uh, commodities and energy in its own currency. And so I think the general trend shift is that we're going towards a more multipolar world, which makes sense because you know there was this like 30 year period from the early 90s, like the fall of the Soviet Union until you know a handful of years ago where we were in a very unipolar world you know there's the united states and everything else built around it and now which is the more natural state of affairs you have a, a handful of different regional powers so so china's economy is comparable to the united states now it's higher in some ways it's lower in other ways uh you also have you know the eurozone is a is a big block you have a couple other regional powers like india brazil uh russia obviously you have these kind of regional powers 
And that's that's the world we currently live in. So unless something devastating happens to China or some of these countries, I, I think the trend is towards a more multipolar uh, world for both payment systems, so that countries are you know protected against getting cut off from the dollar, uh, as well as reserve diversification, so that they they don't have 100% of their reserves or 60% of their reserves, you know, fully exposed to the dollar and either inflation risk or seizure risk. That multipolar world, do you think we're at a stage where we should be considering that Bitcoin is a relevant part of that? It's kind of more of a decentralized, uh, uh, permissionless uh, alternative, but it is an alternative to individuals, nation states. So I think it's on the horizon, but it's still early because Bitcoin's not big and liquid enough for right. that scale yet. I mean, right now we're still at the stage where large individuals can move the price, uh, let alone countries uh, moving the price. Um, and so I think it's one of those things like Bitcoin kind of needs another zero on its liquidity and its market cap in order to be relevant at that scale. Uh, right now, it's it's really about gold, dollars, and yuan, kind of, and just these 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 alternate payment systems um, and, and less so about Bitcoin. But obviously, the potential for Bitcoin is is huge, and, and certainly you must have countries looking at it. Uh, you know, Russia's mentioned it. The number of countries have, have clearly looked at it. Hmm. Are you following the uh, the choke point drama related to all of this? The various banks cutting people off. We've had some in the UK. We've seen some in the US. Some people uh, raising suspicions of what happened with some of the banks is part of the choke point. How real do you think that is? I think there's a lot of truth to it. I, I think the people that are, that are covering it are asking the right questions, right? So, for example, with with say, um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, one of the banks, for example, like Signature, for example, when that bank was closed, and now you know their their network, you know their crypto network's up for sale now, and you know the FDIC is supposed to get maximum recovery for deposit holders and for taxpayers now, and that they're not willing to sell that. It seems right. I think there's there's interesting questions that should be asked uh, to hold them to account, and you know, unfortunately, this goes back to the 1940s, which is, you know. I guess we can back. So, if you look at the 70s, right, if you have very high inflation because of excessive bank lending, the central bank can tighten a lot and slow that down because debts are very low. You can just say, okay, everything's tighter now, super high interest rates, and that will curtail lending. The problem is if you have a 1940s environment where the sovereign itself is very, very highly indebted, there's tons of debt in the system, they have trouble raising interest rates super high. Because in addition to causing all these, obviously, these bank problems, it also compounds into causing more and more fiscal deficits that have to be monetized. And so what they generally do in that environment is they're less likely to raise interest rates super high the way like Volcker did. And instead, they keep interest rates low or moderate while then also doing capital controls or lending controls to prevent you know, lenders from taking advantage of those negative real rates. And you see that, for example, in Turkey today. They say, okay, if you're a corporation, you can't borrow lira and buy foreign currency with it, right? Because otherwise, why wouldn't you? Their, their interest rates are not high enough to, to compensate you for lira inflation. Uh, there's a good incentive to borrow lira and buy almost anything else. And so they try to restrict that type of speculative attack on their currency. Uh, you've also seen Nigeria, for example, they, they've cut off their banking system to crypto exchanges. And so I, I think around the margin, that is one of the defenses that that these countries turn to. And I think in developed markets, we are seeing so early signs of that, basically, that they're, that they're clamping down around the margins where they can and where they think they have cover to do so. And do you think that, like, a lot of people would 
point the finger up and say, well, this is all about control. And it feels that sometimes it's actually more about protecting their system. And I know they're kind of the same thing, but it is a slight difference. It's not just so much like, oh, we don't like Bitcoin, it's bad, he's just using it, we want to be able to control you. It's that actually if there is a flight to safety into Bitcoin, it could destroy the whole system. And in, in, in terms of trying to protect stability of their system, that might be a reason to choke out Bitcoin. I think from their perspective, yes. I mean, basically, if, if, if a country mismanages its ledger, uh, or has to do things that are not popular, um, that's that's where they they turn to controls. Uh, and so in the United States, for example, during World War II, I mean, well, during the 30s, even before World War II, uh, and, and continued till the 1970s, it was illegal for Americans to own gold. So 40 years couldn't own gold. And the reason for that essentially was the, the, the U.S. ledger was being uh, inflated, and they had to try to ban alternative ledgers. They say, well, you can't use gold as your savings. You have to use a dollar, and you have to sit there and earn negative real yields for like a decade. And you know, if you don't want to, then then tough luck. And you know, it's funny because the United States. So mostly, they only ban upwards, right? So for example, the United States was basically, uh, uh, you know, with maybe Switzerland aside, but basically Swiss and the United States were like the two cur- like strongest currency systems you could be in during that period. So the only thing the United States had to worry about was gold. You know, didn't have to worry about people wanting to go into like French currency because they were getting wrecked. You know, even more. Um, and so, you know, they only had to be. You only had to ban upwards. Uh, similar today, Argentina will freak out and and try to prevent people from getting into dollars too quickly. You know, whereas the United States is not worried about people going into Argentine pesos too quickly. Um, Nigeria is worried about people going into dollars. They're worried about people going into Bitcoin and stable coins and things like that. So yeah, basically it's, a, it's these ledgers turn to protective measures when their own system is weak and they want to try to f- prevent flight into something stronger. You said, um, in like the, this scenario makes it hard for the, uh, the fed to keep raising rates. Do you think they're done raising rates now? So the market is currently pricing that it thinks that they're basically done. Uh, that they're going to pause. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I think they, you know, I would not be surprised to see another 25 basis point hike around the margins uh, because at this this point, I now have to get into the head of Jerome Powell, mm-hmm. which, and I don't know, I don't know him personally, right? So it, it, you're, it's basically asking about one person's decision, which uh, that's how our system's built, right? Um, so I, I think that they're certainly on the path where they're slowing down and approaching a pause because it's only so quickly you can raise rates without breaking everything. Um, and I think that's the issue. And I think also later this year, so so right now, the treasury has been providing liquidity to the market, ironically, because of the debt ceiling. They can't issue new debt. And so one of their extraordinary measures is they start drawing down their existing cash balances, uh, which is actually pro-liquidity for the rest of the market. Basically, there's there's this void of capital that Treasury holds that is now entering back into the market out of necessity. And that will, I mean, they're almost out. So so roughly by the summer or late summer, depends on on tax revenues and expenditures, things like that. Their current estimate is like late summer, early autumn, they'd run out. Um, and whenever the debt ceiling is resolved one way or another, when they go to refill their cash balance, that is extremely negative for liquidity. And I think the Fed's going to have trouble being tight while that happens. So I, I do think there are a lot of interesting factors that start hitting in the second half of this year. Uh, but I think that in the next you know, couple months, there's really nothing 
outright preventing the Fed from continuing to either hold or inch a little bit tighter. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners think that once the Fed pauses, we'll be back at like zero in the matter of like months or years. What do you think is more likely to happen? Do you think they're going to pause and then start hiking again in, say, 12 months' time? Or do you think it, it does trend back towards zero pretty quickly? I think, I mean, that'll, that's, that's a lot of steps ahead. Um, and again, it's based on human decisions. I, so I, I think we're in a new regime now where we're not, we're not going lower lows and lower highs. I think now we're going sideways or up. And so I think if they were to cut rates, they'd be, they'd do everything they can to prevent cutting to zero. Uh, they could, for example, cut to 2%. Uh, if there's a recession, uh, basically when, if they can drop interest rates by, you know, 300 basis points from say five to two, that's a pretty stimulatory effect. Uh, I think a, a bigger factor in some ways is what happens with their um, balance sheet. The question is, do th- will they have to expand it against their will in order to keep the sovereign bond market liquid? That's what they had to do in September 2019. That, that repo spike was ultimately a T-bill oversupply problem, which is why three weeks after providing repo liquidity, the Fed had to also buy T-bills, right? Because ultimately, it was you know even the repo spike that that was being used by hedge funds and stuff to buy T-bills. Um, and so they, they eventually, the Fed had to start buying T-bills. I think by the end of this year, the Fed is probably gonna have to stop quantitative tightening um, because it's just, you know, it's draining too much liquidity out and no one's really buying. And it, it might or might not have to buy some some treasury bonds. Now, it partially depends on also what Yellen does, the treasury secretary, because for example, she could issue a lot of short-duration T-bills and suck money out of reverse repos. Um, but if they continue their current path of trying to issue longer duration, like intermediate-duration debt, that could cause a liquidity problem unless the Fed ends up buying some of it. So, I, I, again, I think for the next couple months, the Fed doesn't really have to do much. I, I think the questions later this year get interesting, and it's, it's that interplay between the Fed and the Treasury and there's right now it's too many variables here in like the end of March to to predict exactly what's going to happen in that time. Do you think uh, Lynn should take over from Jerome Powell? I mean, I think so. I think so. <laughs> uh, okay, anyone, ha- anyone, anyone who knows the situation should avoid that that job. There's, there's basically why do you think there's he's no, staying in it. I don't understand. Yeah, why does he want that job? Is he a psycho? I think when he stayed in that job, it kind of indicated that he. He's overconfident in how how it's going to be handled. I think the the problem is, and and you know if you listen to his speeches, he refers to the 1970s and he refers to Volcker, right? But the problem is that what's happening now has very little similarities to the 70s. That was due to excessive bank lending, and it was at a time when interest rates, when debt as as a percentage of GDP was low, whereas now it's more like the 40s, where the inflation's coming from excessive fiscal spending, uh, and debts are very very high. So I think basically their playbook is just not looking back far enough, and I think they underestimate the scale of the problem. Do, do you think this is you refer to Volcker and he keeps referring to that? Do you think this is him about trying to create some legacy? I do. I think I I think he wants. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't want to be known as Arthur Burns. He wants to be known as Paul Volcker. Uh, hawks generally get looked on better by in history than doves, and I I think he is trying to basically fulfill his role. Uh, I think that's his that's his view. And I think, um, I mean, he's super rich. I don't know why he wants the job. Yeah, I think he, it's is he know, worth like a hundred million or something? Something like that. Yeah, he's worth yeah at least at least tens of millions, maybe a hundred million. Maybe it's just a game to him. 
It could be, but I think, I mean, legacy and reputation and power all kind of go hand in hand. Um, so yeah, maybe it's what gives him meaning, but I don't really want to psychoanalyze no. Jerome Powell. I mean, who knows what drives him? There's, just, there's we, a bit of talk about him being under some pressure now. Um, do you think though, this is just an unwinnable situation for anyone? Would we be in the same situation, whether it was Jerome Powell or whoever's next? Not with Lynn I do. That's why, yeah, I think that anyone who knows the situation wouldn't take the job because of that. It's essentially an unwinnable situation. Now, there's still things, uh, you know, he could have been less loose in late 2021. He didn't have to, you know, he was still doing QE when inflation was notably above target. Um, and then when he pivoted, he didn't have to go from zero to 5% in a year, in a little over a year. Like he's, he's, he's being so active and whipping around the entire monetary base and whipping around the whole bank cash thing. And I think that is, it's ham fisted. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's bull in a China shop. It's, you know, I think there's valid criticism that he's, he, he, he goes to extremes too much. Uh, but that that's different from the, from the observation that this is in large part built up over decades. It's in large part due to the fiscal side and there's, you know, if, if you put Paul Volcker in today, he, I don't think he would be able to fix anything. I still think uh, Lynn Alden would, Danny. I think. Nope. Hey, anyway, Lynn, this is brilliant. Uh, how's the book going? Have we, have we got uh, a target date? Well. I'm on the second editing phase. <sighs> um, yeah, it's going very well. Do we have a release date? No, but it, uh, it'll be this year. To me and Danny get an early look. We can talk about it, yeah. Talk about it's, it. it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bring one in person. Let's have a little flick. All right, Lynn, brilliant. Are we, are we gonna, we're going to see you in Miami, aren't we? Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you for this. As ever, uh, if you're listening and you haven't checked out Lynn's amazing newsletter, go and check it out. It's the ridiculous low price. Is, was it 199 still? Have you even... Yes. You know there's, there's been inflation, Lynn? I do. Well, the funny thing is when I originally priced it, I anticipated inflation and therefore I priced it a little bit above my, my what my price was going to be so that I purposely wouldn't have to change it for a few years. You're way under Doomberg. I pay a lot more for Doomberg's email. <laughs> and I, yeah. Anyway, listen, go check that out. It's lynnalden. Is it net? Dot com. Dot com. Lynnalden.com. We'll put it in the show notes. Lynn, me and Danny love you. Thank you so much. We will see you in Miami in May. And yeah, take care. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Lynn. All right, what did you think of that one? Do you enjoy that? I know Lynn is amazing. Sometimes it's hard to enjoy when things are going a little bit crazy, but we know Lynn brings a fire. We know how good she is, so it's always great to get her back on the show. And I think we've pretty much covered everything to do with the bank runs with Caitlin last month, but getting Lynn on to cover a little bit more, to get her take on this was super useful. So I hope you enjoyed this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you know you can drop me an email, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. You can jump into our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. And if you want to come to one of our live shows, please head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. 